0: On this episode of The London Life Scene, we talk with Dr. Tom Schreiner about the Millennium. So we cover all sorts of topics like what are the various views on the Millennium? How should we interpret things like Revelation 20? How has that been interpreted throughout Christian history? Are there common pitfalls that we can avoid when interpreting books like Revelation? And how should the rest of the canon function in developing a sound interpretation of things like Revelation 20? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm alongside Hunter Heinsman, our book review editor for us at The London Lyceum. And we are a podcast that is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And when when we we say that, we don't mean just like, I want to be rigorous and that's it. Uh, We want to have certain intellectual virtues that surround that sort of thinking. So a couple of those that we've prioritized or used, and partly just because we're Baptists, we like to have the words that start with the same letter. So we've got these things called charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So the are four nice Cs that kind of capture a little bit of what we're trying to promote and encourage, which is a, an environment that is deeply serious about all the best possible arguments and ideas and uh, thinking at the highest level possible, but doing it with traditional Christian charity and love and gentleness and openness. So we hope to posture ourselves in that sort of right frame of mind to where we don't let people off the hook for bad arguments, but we also do it. Uh, in the right spirit and just in a brotherly Christian way. We're not perfect at this, but that's what we try to strive to promote and encourage. And so hopefully you will join with us in that. And now today, I am thrilled to in- introduce you all to Dr. Tom Schreiner. I think many of you probably know Tom uh, from his books or from other uh, lectures that he's given. Uh, uh, just a really solid, faithful uh, minister as well as professor um, over decades. So I am super excited to be able to talk with him particularly about the nature of the millennium and specifically focusing on revelation 20 i mean i'm sure we'll talk about other texts but i think that one's one of the the hot topics that at least when i studied the the relevant information on it. That was the one that I was always coming back to, saying, "How in the world do I understand this?" And then Shy Lin dropped this awesome, uh, you know, song, and it solved all my problems. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, before we before we jump in, uh, Tom, give me just a little bit of background. What do you do now? Um, what are your interests? And then maybe what was it that really decided to, for you, to pursue New Testament studies for as long as you have?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm in my 26th. Year of teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Before that, I taught 11 years at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then three years at Azusa Pacific. And um, yeah, I was really divided when I was doing my Master of Divinity. I was very interested in Old Testament, Systematics, and New Testament. So Finally, New Testament won out. I mean, I think they're all super valuable, but New Testament won out because uh, for me, I wanted to stick closer to doing textual work, I suppose. And, um, and if I could say something about Revelation, I, uh, Jim Hamilton asked me to write uh, the Revelation commentary for the ESV expository commentary series some years ago, and I did that. And then I wrote a little book on the joy of hearing for Crossway. And I've just finished. Actually, I'm reading the proofs now of uh I'm writing the Baker commentary. I've actually written it now on, on Revelation. So I've been inundated with Revelation the last few years, and that's been a that's been a lot of fun, and it's been um challenging and humbling at the same time. I, I realize. How much I don't know still. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's awesome. So I know we'll get into just Revelation in general, but maybe before we do that, just give me a little bit of conceptual lay of the land. When we're thinking about the topic of the millennium, what is it that we're exactly talking about?
1: Well, you know, when it, the only place the Bible explicitly talks about a millennium is in Revelation 20 millennium means thousand years when we read the text we read that uh, Satan is uh, thrown into the abyss for a thousand years the uh, the Saints uh, come alive and they reign with Christ for a thousand years at the end of that1,000 years Satan is released and leads an army against the people of God and and they're destroyed so that's just a quick really a quick summary of the contents of revelation 20.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's, that's useful. So now when we think about this text in particular, what are the various ways that it has been interpreted? I mean, I know the, I guess, three general views, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or amillennial, however you're supposed to say it. Um Are those the only three views out there? What do they mean? Where has this fit with the history of interpretation? So I guess the question would be, what are these? Do we find spe- specific versions of them at different periods of history, or are they all intermingled? Um, how does that look?
1: Yeah, well, I could spend the whole time answering that question. So feel, feel free to interrupt me. I may, I'll start with, uh, If in, in the history of interpretation, we see very early on uh, historical premillennialism. So we, we see that with uh, Papias, uh Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Victorinus, who wrote a commentary on Revelation, and and others. So that, that's that's the view that uh Christ will will reign on earth, there'll be a thousand years. Of course, that number could be symbolic. Some pre-millennialists say it's symbolic. Many take it literally, and and it'll be an a very fruitful period on Earth. It immediately gets complicated because you have different kinds of premillennialists. We're, we're in the last, what, 150 years or so, you, we have dispensational premillennialists who would be premillennialists, but would feature right the, the role of Israel and Jerusalem and Jesus ruling from Jerusalem, and the Jewish people have a special place in the millennium. Hi- historical premillennialists who are still around today, right? people like, he's no longer alive, but people like George Ladd, for instance, uh, would not emphasize that. They would not be dispensational premillennialists. The earliest premillennialists in history, like Papias and so forth and so on, they weren't dispensational, since dispensationalism really started in the 1800s with John Nelson Darby. So maybe I could pause there. Do you want to say anything about that? or?
0: Well, uh, I'm sure Hunter has something he wants to say about Justin or somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Martyr is my guy, so he's one of the guys yeah. I'm studying. So I, I, you know, definitely see that. Do you? I know in the early church you have some this idea of
1: there's a whole kind of I don't know the quite word of it, but they have see periods of a thousand years um, in secession, uh, like you know, and does that
0: play into some of their views or? Is there even diversity amongst uh the early church where it's not like in six thousand years there'll be the millennium of the seven thousand and then into the new
1: new heavens? Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> some some do. Uh, the Epistle of Barnabas has this uh the six thousand years and then the seven the the the, the seventh thousand is uh uh millennial, uh the millennial reign. They don't all say that, you know. So, some some do and some don't. So there's uh, there's diversity there on that matter. Interesting. Yeah,
0: I I am curious. I think if I remember correctly, you seem to have waffled on your preferred position. So maybe tell me, what do you think Revelation 20 is teaching now? Um, and why did you change your mind if you did?
1: Well, yeah, I'll get to that. Let me say something about the uh, the amillennial and postmillennial view. So the... It it depends on how you read things, but at least Charles Hill has argued that uh, early fathers like Cyprian and Hippolytus were all millennial. Clearly, by the time we get to Ticonius, perhaps many of your hearers haven't heard of him, but Ticonius had a great influence on Augustine and Jerome. So all millennialism, you know, Augustine's great influence on everything, all millennialism began to, to dominate. There, there are different there are different construals of all millennialism, but but essentially we can say that the millennium begins at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. That the number of thousand is clearly symbolic. Uh, for, for Augustine, uh, the saints come to life when they're uh, baptized or regenerated. But the probably the most popular amillennial view today, you you see this in Greg Beale, Meredith Klein, is that it's the uh, reign of the in in the intermediate state of saints in heaven, and of course that's a long-held view as well. But but in the amillennial view, you know the crucial thing is the millennium really started at the ascension, uh, and uh, it lasts until the second coming. So that's that's very different from the premillennial view, because in the premillennial view, obviously, the millennium hasn't started yet. Postmillennialism, really, you know, postmillennialism and amillennialism, they're not very different from one another in many ways. I mean, all all postmillennialists really are amillennialists as well. Uh, And in many respects, they believe that. But but then there's differences, right? Some postmillennialists believe the millennium started at the ascension. Others have located it at a particular point in history. You know, I I don't have this right in my head, but you know, some some, you know, said I don't remember who said this. It started with Constantine, for example. So, you know, some are very specific about when when the millennium began. Postmillennialism it differs from amillennialism typically in seeing the world as being gradually transformed by the preaching of the gospel. Now, now in, in, you know, in American thought, that kind of became secularized, and you have this whole idea of manifest destiny and that sort of thing. But evangelical postmillennialists will still say today, you no, know, we, we don't believe it's through, uh, you know, secular means that the millennium is uh, uh, realized, but through the preaching of the gospel. And there maybe there's a little bit of a comeback today through um, the most theonomists or postmillennialist. Doug Wilson is popular in some circles, but uh, but the pure. I didn't say this. The most of the Puritans were postmillennial. And there's a nice little book on this by Ian Murray. Maybe many of your hearers have read it. The Puritan Hope. That's a nice little summary of the post-millennial view. The on-millennial view is not as optimistic, right, about the world being uh, transformed. So, and then there's one other view I want to mention, and that is that the this is a view maybe most of your hearers haven't heard of. It hasn't really been very popular, but it's that the, the millennial teaching really can't be mapped onto anything. It's... Um, it, it's a, a little bit of an ethereal view. John says there's a thousand year reign. What does that mean exactly? It, th- this view is hard to describe because they'd say, well, there's, that's the vision. What's the reality? The reality is, is, uh, is difficult to pin down. <laughs> so I don't, I actually find that view attractive because I think this issue is very difficult. But I'm not satisfied with a view that just leaves us sort of up in the air. Yeah. I, I think that's the problem with it. Now, yes, I have been, I was trained in a school that was dispensational pre So I, I, I held that for a short time. Then under the influence, I went to Fuller Seminary for my PhD. He wasn't there, but under the influence of George Ladd, especially, I became a historical premillennialist. Even though George uh, Ladd wasn't teaching by the time I got there, but I'd read a lot of Ladd and was influenced by him as a young scholar. But then slowly, uh, I became a By the time of my ESV Expository Commentary, I was very influenced by Meredith Klein and the uh, amazing commentary by uh, Greg Beale. As well, and 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 Anthony Hokama's "The Bible in the Future." I think that's a great book on eschatology, and uh, you know Sam Storms, who's a friend of mine. Many of your hearers know who Sam is. So m- many others. So, but but I, I've waffled over the years as I did this commentary on Revelation, my latest offering. I began to have doubts. About the amillennial millennial view and the historical premillennial view, I'm not at all dogmatic about this. I do not claim, in any sense, to arrive at the final answer. I could never say that. I think it's way too difficult. But I, I'm right where I am right now. I'm, I'm endorsing this view and supporting this view and arguing for this view called new creation millennialism. That view was argued for in a dissertation by Webb Mealy, and it's recently been supported by Eckhard Schnabel. He has a recent article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society supporting that view. It's in in his, it's in his book, 40 Questions on the Bible in the Future. I forget the exact name of that book, but it'd be easy to find. It's in that 40 questions. Series on eschatology. But the essence of this view is that the millennium is, is, is the first age of the new creation. I like this view. I, I'm, a, I'm a person who waffles on things, some, not everything, thankfully, but I like this view because it's a um it's a via media between the all-millennial and premillennial view. Although I found, as I explained it to people, the, the all-millennialists say, Oh, you're pre and the premill say I'm all so I'm not satisfying anyone. But here, here's the view: the millennium is the first, the first age of the of the new creation. And so, like like the premillennialists, I believe the binding of of Satan is total and complete. Right in the all millennial view, the binding of Satan takes place at the cross. And it can't be total because Satan is still influencing the world in which we live. In the premillennial view, that binding of Satan for that thousand year period or that symbolic period of time, however you take it, is complete. He can't do any damage on earth. I think that the complete binding of Satan, along with the premillennial view, is more convincing. So that's part of the new creation view. The, the the second argument, and this is even more important to me, when when John says they they came to life, this is Revelation 20, verse 4, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then he says in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. I felt a lot of tension looking at this text with the amillennial claim. Let, let's just take Beale's understanding and Klein's, that's the most popular today. That that is coming to life in the intermediate state, I think that I think it's more likely that it's talking about the physical resurrection. One of my problems with the millennial view is, the, you know, when we when we come to the end of Revelation, what's the great vindication that's going to take place for the saints? I mean, nothing is said in the millennial view explicitly at the end here about the physical resurrection. Yet the New Testament says very little about the intermediate state that in itself is a disputed matter, what the intermediate intermediate state is, and some even doubt that it exists. I think it exists. But it seems more natural to take this as a reference to the resurrection. That seems even like a stronger argument when we consider in, in verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And virtually everyone agrees that's a physical resurrection of unbelievers. So, you know, the advantage of of a pre-mill new creation reading is to understand the resurrection to be physical in these cases. Uh, By the way, to get a little bit technical, the word anastasis that's used for this is the first resurrection, N.T. Wright argues in his marvelous book, the resurrection of the Son of God, that anastasis always means physical resurrection. But then he does say, except for in Revelation 20. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it refers to a physical resurrection. So, so I believe so, in that sense, the new creation millennial view is like the premillennial view. However, where does it differ? There, there are no there are no unglorified saints in the millennium because the millennium is the first age of the new creation, and that's a problem with the premillennial view. When Jesus comes on the white horse and destroys all his enemies, how does how is there anybody in the millennium that doesn't have a glorified body or who hasn't been judged? And they they have various ways of solving that. No one can solve every problem in whatever view you hold, but uh that's a difficulty for the premillennial view his- the historic premillennial view that the new creation view doesn't share because we're in the new creation now all the wicked are judged all the all the righteous are glorified so so you don't have this strange situation where you have glorified and unglorified saints living on earth we're we're in the new creation it's the first stage of the new creation okay but but now, how is it like the amillennial view? It's like the amillennial view in that I interpret, and this has always appealed to me about amillennialism, I interpret famous so-called millennial passages like Isaiah 60 and um, Ezekiel 40 through 48 and Isaiah 65 and so forth and so on. There's, there's a number of these texts. I interpret those all to be fulfilled in the new creation. And actually it's very interesting, right? Those those passages that so many premillennialists see as fulfilled in the millennium are all uh, alluded to copiously in Revelation 21 and 22. That's that's where the new creation is. So so I I read I read the text my my basic reading of Revelation is I, I see I see it as very symbolic. And the, the 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 fulfillments aren't literal. So for example, I agree, just to help map where I am, I agree with Greg Beale, Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, that speaks of people dying. Most pre-mill take that to be the millennium. I think Beale rightly argues that when we interpret this correctly, no one has actually that, that's no one is actually dying. This passage is referring to the new creation. Isaiah even says it's referring to the new creation. So maybe I hope we're not getting too much into the weeds. So in that sense, I I agree with the all millennialists. Now, what's the big problem? What the, every view has problems. What's the big problem with the new creation view? It's that it's that final attack, right? I mean, it fits perfectly. But then you have Satan and And his armies coming to attack the saints so if if all the wicked are judged, and uh, who joins Satan in these armies, then so so this is the weakest point of new creation, millennialism. i I think it's still the best explanation. as I said, every view has problems the The answer is when when Satan, after the thousand years is released we see also in verse in verse 5 that the rest of the dead come to life at the end of the 1000 years and so the the theory the interpretation is that these remaining dead they join Satan in the attack as they're raised from the dead and then then they're wiped out so just a couple objections that i want would want to respond to is one what's the what's the point of attacking glorified saints i mean that's 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 insane they can't win my my answer not just my answer my answer is that um evil it shows the insanity of evil evil at the end of the day is ir- irrational evil is fundamentally self-destructive and and we've uh we we've seen that throughout history evil evil implodes upon itself and is uh destructive in that way and and then another point i want to make is this i don't i don't because people have asked me this i don't agree with Webb Mealy on everything and every facet of his interpretation i think his dissertation was helpful but for example he's an annihilationist and i'm not a annihilationist. So yeah, that's that's kind of the basic, maybe I talked too long, but that's sort of the basic view.
0: Okay. So I want to know at this point, Revelation is clearly difficult. Like what, how in the world do I think rightly about interpreting this sort of text? I mean, just Revelation in general, there's dragons, all sorts of stuff. Like, What what are the sort of pitfalls that I want to avoid, principles that I want to employ?
1: Well, I I would say the fundamental flaw people make, I doubt your listeners would make this mistake, but they resort to what I call newspaper eschatology. And they they read, in, in some popular circles, they read Revelation in light of the newspaper and 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 they derive their interpretation thereby. And we think of the enormous popularity of Hal Lindsay's book, right, the Ten Kings or the Common Market, or of uh, LaHaye and Jenkins' book as well, which isn't claiming to be an interpretation, but I think it's affected how people read the book. Or even a very well-known president of a seminary, you know, uh, started seeing our enemies in the early 2000s, and the enemies in the book of Revelation is being Iraq. Maybe, maybe you even remember that, Jordan. So that's, that's what I'd call newspaper eschatology. The, the better way to interpret Revelation is to, to say the original readers understood the book. Now, I'm not saying they understood everything in the book. Obviously, there are difficulties in it. But the, the, the book was written to the seven churches in what's modern-day Turkey, uh, the province of Asia Minor, and they could understand the book. However, the book, uh, the book has three genres. It's epistolary, it's prophetic, and it's apocalyptic. So I think the key is to recognize apocalyptic literature is symbolic. And that's what makes it difficult. And I would stipulate every interpreter agrees it's symbolic. And here's the example I always use. You have the vision that John sees and then the reference. Nobody believes that the opponents of the people of God, Revelation 13, is a literal beast. John says it's a beast. That's the vision. But what's the referent? Now, I would argue John has in mind Rome and evil empires throughout history as well. But that's the challenge, isn't it? Because in some cases, the dragon That's the vision. Satan Satan is pictured as a a mythological monster. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying Satan is mythological, but he's pictured as as a mythological dragon-like monster. That's That's the vision. And what's the referent? The referent is Satan. So sometimes it's easy, but then often, well, maybe I shouldn't say often, but in many cases, it's difficult and that's that's where we struggle and 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 the interesting thing i think about revelation is often as an interpreter john just tells us the vision and then he doesn't say much about the referent that so you think of the judgments the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9 or the bowl judgments in chapter 16 well, what's, you, you have the vision. How literally should we take that in terms of a referent? I think that's extraordinarily difficult. I was very excited to read interpreters throughout history to see what they said about those chapters in particular. And I recognized, oh, they, we've, interpreters all through history have struggled to discern what the referent is. It's hard.
0: Yeah. So uh, another question that I, I want to get your feedback on is, I think you've mentioned how Revelation 20 is like the only place where we're finding terminology of millennium. So what do we do when we have one text that says this, but let's say we read the rest of the canon and we seem to think it's pointing to something else. Does this text still have interpretive priority over the rest like how should we think of the interplay between that is it just a matter of stacking verses or is there a particular like waiting system of some sort like what what's our model for thinking well about how all of scripture fits together
1: yeah well that that's a great question and and it is important i i think we would i i would say that we would have at least questions about any, any view that it was only in this passage and not clearly in other texts. However, when it comes to this issue, as, as you know, it depends on how you're interpreting all these Old Testament texts. So, so typically, premillennialists would say, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's there in Isaiah 60. It's there in Isaiah 65. It's, you know, we see it in the Psalms. And so we see it in Ezekiel. But all millennialists interpret all those texts differently. So so it it sort of retrojects back to the Old Testament, how do we interpret those texts? And should we interpret those texts literally, um, that's a loaded word, but in terms of their fulfillment? So I think it's whatever view one holds, yes, there are other texts that can support your reading. But what makes it complicated is scholars disagree on what those texts mean. So it it, it just, it it throws the discussion into how, how do we interpret Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25? How literally should we take it? And so forth and so on.
0: So thinking along the lines of those Old Testament texts, Uh, I know we've mentioned a couple, I think you've mentioned like Isaiah 65 and some other ones, but what are those key Old Testament texts that you think do foreshadow Revelation 20? Are there any of them? Or are they all referring more to Revelation 21 and 22?
1: Well, so if you take my view, right, the, the, the millennium is the first age and the new creation. So I, along with all millennialists, I understand those texts to refer to the new creation. So let's take Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is extraordinarily difficult. But Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes the building of a future temple. I I would argue, uh, Dan Block argues this in his Ezekiel commentary, that even in its historical context, Ezekiel did not envision the building of a literal temple when we come to revelation the, the end of revelation and the new creation clearly where and John alludes to Ezekiel 40 through 48 many times in Ezekiel in revelation 21 and 22 but clearly John says there's no literal temple so how does John appropriate that text from Ezekiel I mean, I find this most fascinating. He appropriates it in a text where he says there is no temple. So I think that supports the idea that these texts ought to be read in light of the new creation. Cool.
0: So I think, you know, I I was having a conversation with someone just the other day, and the question just came up, like, why is it that we should care about some of the complexities that can happen in our interpretation of scripture and beyond? Like, how does this really have relevance for the average Christian? And if it, it doesn't seem like picking between these millennial views has direct import for a person who goes and works at a factory, like, how would you explain, no, this does matter, and here are some of the reasons that uh, everyday Christians should care about thinking about the millennium?
1: Yes, well, my my response... My response would be, first, uh, my interest in the book of Revelation, I would begin with saying, does not center on the millennium at all. I do not think that's the center of the book. And that's not the reason I'm mainly interested. I think in evangelical circles, that is often the interest. But I don't think that's of, of great importance, actually, in the book. Why should we care about it? Well, it's part of Revelation. But 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 I would say, and I think many, at least in the last 100, 200 years, evangelicals would disagree. I would say, I don't, I don't think the millennium is of great importance. I mean, the new creation is of great importance. But whether you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial, evangelicals in the past have battled those, over those issues, sometimes very stridently sometimes in, I think, very ungodly ways, I, I don't think is of great importance at the end of the day. Uh, so if you're, if, you're, if you're premillennial or all-millennial, the, the interesting thing is, whatever your view, it ends. <laughs> the, the, the new creation, of course, my view differs a little bit there, but the new creation lasts forever. I don't think something that ends can be of paramount importance is it important it's important it's in god's word but we do have to wait things and say what's what is more important what is less important and and i hope i think we're getting to the place in evangelical circles where we recognize this is not of paramount importance now i do have to say that's that's In the dispensational tradition, I think that's harder, and I respect and honor dispensationalists. I was taught by dispensationalists. I think, I think the reason it's so important for them is the way they read the whole Bible. You know, this is the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel. So I understand that, Um, but I have a lot of reasons for not reading all of Scripture that way.
0: Yeah. So along that line, I I am curious. Maybe you have advice. I think we actually have. I'm always finding out we have quite a few listeners who are coming from more dispensationalist or fundamentalist sort of backgrounds, and the churches that they serve in are very much you have to have a pre-tribulation pre-millennial, or you need to leave this church. You need to split it over for whatever reason. So it's very difficult if they're exploring these things and saying, you know, what I don't know if it's it's wise to read the whole Bible in this sort of literalistic way, like what advice could you give them to say to teach their congregation, to shepherd them well away from like, this is first tier issue and more towards this can be a second or third tier issue that we can have disagreements on.
1: Yeah. Well, if, if we're talking about a pastor, I would say to a pastor, don't, don't preach on this very early in your ministry. Establish trust. So that the congregation recognizes that you are a faithful expositor of the text, and you're not a person uh, who has uh, certain agendas or axes that you're trying to grind and and so then you can come to this after after a, a hopefully a, some years and and help your congregation grow in that respect. The other thing I'd say, I think it's really important. Uh, I think so. So say you're not a dispensationalist and you've grown away from that. I think some people who grow away from that can become uh, proud and, and 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 have sort of a superior, supercilious spirit and be and 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 that and that rubs. You know, it's like, oh, you you're so. You hold that dispensational view of that. How could anybody possibly believe that? So I think a big part of this is just respecting and honoring people and, and recognizing and to say to other people, maybe you're right. I mean, I think people want to be heard and respected and, 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 and at least I've seen this a lot of people because a lot of people have moved away from dispensationalism. It's just a fact in the last few years. But there can be a sense of when you move away from something of of, of of a of a sense of scorn and mocking. I don't think everybody's like that, but I but that that is not helpful, right? People people want to be respected and honored. And uh, so that pastoral spirit, I, I think that goes a long way. So people realize you 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 love them. So I was a preaching pastor of our church for 17 years. And one guy came up to me when I first came to our church plant, and he said to me, "The most important area is eschatology in reading the Bible." And I knew what he meant. He meant these kind of issues, and I knew we disagreed. And I just, I didn't. I just nodded in my head. I'm wasn't gonna, you know. I realized I said, "I hope this person can grow with us." I'm not gonna argue with them because I immediately thought, "I don't agree with that," <laughs> but. <laughs> but I don't want to debate with him at this point. I want to shepherd him. So, you know, I, you talk about this at the beginning of your podcast, charity and love towards one another. I think that's that's really important in this issue. It's more important than winning the argument. After all, uh, you know, something I meant to say, it's so interesting. Eusebius, right, in the history of the church, when he talks about Papias' view, Papius' view, the, Eusebius says, Papias says, I'm paraphrasing. He's premillennial and he's really dumb. You know, he he has very little intelligence. I, uh, well, that's this. We, we we understand. You know, these debates are have gone on in a long time, but we don't want to talk that way. As as bright as Eusebius was, it wasn't it wasn't right of him to cast doubts on Papius's intelligence just because Papias was premillennial. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's good. Well, one last question. I'd love for you to give us a little bit of advice in, is I think over the last five to ten years, in our evangelical context anyway, there has been a resurgence of systematic theology, um, which I think is a good thing. But what seems to be the danger or the worry that a lot of people have now is, are we going to allow our systematic theology to drive our exegesis of biblical texts? So could you help me to think through in your mind, what is the interplay between traditional exegesis of the old and new testaments and then the theological formulation and the work that goes on uh from that text
1: mm, mm, that's a great that's a great question i think uh so I almost went into systematics as i said i'm a i'm a i think systematics is the sumum bonum I think we all live from our systematic theology, and I would say people who say. You know, I I've, I've met some biblical scholars who say we don't, I don't do systematics. I just I just read the Bible. I think that's I think that's simplistic and short sighted and just mistaken because they do have a systematic theology, and and I think there's a there's a, a hermeneutical circle, a hermeneutical spiral. We we all come to the text with a theology that, that's that's fine, that's good. Uh, we. We we are all informed by history, and we should be. We stand on the shoulders of our uh, of those who've gone before us, and and I think it's arrogant to to say, well, I'm just going to start with my Bible and not not learn from those who've gone before us. So, I think the role the role of biblical studies is to 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 constantly say it what is what is our systematic theology really found in the text and there's that is there there's that constant interplay isn't there and systematics can also ask are you are you reading are you reading the bible in the light of the whole and 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 of course philosophy comes in here as well and church history so i think i think there's a dynamic interplay i don't think there's a formula but we, we have to include every dimension of the interpretive uh, process and and to forsake systematics. I'm, I'm speaking as a biblical person, I think is uh, uh, really short sighted hmm. and, and not helpful. The, the danger, right? The danger for systematicians and for all of us is to impose our own constructs upon the text. And, so we, we come back to the text and say, what what does the text say? So,
0: yeah. I, And I guess the, the question, the problem that I see oftentimes is there's a worry of like, you're imposing something on the text. But then I see others who will say, well, no, no, no. Everybody's imposing something on the text. It's whether you are honest about it and then you allow Scripture to reform that that sort of like, I guess, presupposition that you come with to it. Is that... An appropriate way to think about it,
1: yeah. Well, I, and I would say we, we I, yeah, we probably all are all imposing. Imposing has, I think, has the idea of perhaps something wrong. Obviously, right. we would all agree there are parts of our theology that aren't correct. We don't know what those are, but we. But I would want to say, coming to the coming to the text with a theology. Is is a good thing, that assuming assuming it's orthodox, right? So um, and and you know even our debates in evangelicals, I mean actually dispensational covenant and other views, they're, they're in many ways we're not very far apart. So coming to the text with a certain uh, understanding of things is helpful. But then then we, we have to look at the text and see if these things are really so. So I would say, so I, I grew up as a Catholic and I, I was not a believer, but I was enormously benefited growing up as a Catholic because of the things I believed even before I had personal faith. I believed in the Trinity. I believed in Scripture as the Word of God. I I believe, I think this has been helpful to me, I believed history was important in interpreting the Bible. Uh, that, you know, I was just taught that. You know, you can't ignore um, 20 centuries of what went before us. Now, I ended up becoming an evangelical, but those those things that were part of my presuppositional framework as I came into faith, I mean, those, those were great advantages. And, uh, imagine if I had come out of... Uh, being a Christian scientist or something, that, that that framework would have to be adjusted much more. Yeah. So,
0: Very helpful. So, Dr. Schreiner, this has been awesome. Uh, r- tell me, what's what's the next book on your, your, your desk that you're working on right now that you want to give a promo for?
1: Well, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a biblical theology of uh, Galatians in the same series I wrote, The Joy of Hearing, and then my next big project, hopefully I'll get to it soon, is I'm doing a, a commentary on, Galatia, on on Ephesians.
0: Excellent. And remind me, you're at Southern. Are you accepting PhD students now or are you full?
1: I am accepting at my age a few. Okay, perfect. Yeah, right. So if
0: you're interested in these things, I mean, I, I'm a Southern grad, so I'm a total homer, but uh, I couldn't think of a better person to study with than somebody like like tom so i encourage you all if you're interested in those sort of things to check out the program there uh, to keep up with what's going on and see if that might be a good fit to serve you and your ministry so everybody who's been tuning in check out dr schreiner's work i'm going to link to several of the ones that he's mentioned here so that you can easily click it and go there and grab it and we appreciate you all for tuning in to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon